Climate Papers, the COP26 Universities Network podcast. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Climate Papers with me, Amanda Carpenter, and my co-host, Elisa Gilbert from the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment at Imperial College. This podcast brings together the best minds in the country to discuss the most important issues in the lead up to COP26. Today, we're putting the net into net zero, aren't we, Elisa? And by considering with our guests the science, policy and practical issues behind setting and delivering ambitious but also credible targets to reach net zero. Yeah, that's right. I think some of our listeners may have heard about this term net zero, so I think it's time to talk about it in more detail. Yeah, it's certainly banded about a lot, isn't it, by organisations, journalists, commentators, you name it. And often I think there's confusion by what we really mean and what the true implications of a net zero world might be. So I'm delighted we've got two experts um, to guide us through today. Chris Hilson is a professor of law and a director of the Reading Centre for Climate and Justice at the University of Reading. He is a legal advisor to Client Earth and a former editor-in-chief of the Journal of Environmental Law, the JEL. Chris has written widely on climate and environmental law, including a recent JEL article on climate targets, and he's a co-author of the newly released briefing paper, Destination Zero. Chris, welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Hello, good to be here. Our second guest, Dr. Yuri Rogel, is Director of Research and a lecturer in climate change and the environment at Grantham Institute. He explores how societies can transform towards more sustainable futures, and his research activities cross many disciplinary boundaries, connecting earth system sciences to the study of societal change and policy. Yuri, huge welcome and thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So as I mentioned when we kicked off, there's a certain amount of confusion swirling around about there, uh, around definitions and terms. So I wonder if we could start with a brief conversation to try and clarify what we mean. Chris, what is net zero and how does it differ from being carbon or climate neutral? Okay, well, the idea of net zero is that we should try to achieve a balance between the sources of greenhouse gas emissions and um, sinks. So it's not about getting to zero greenhouse gas emissions. It's about getting to net zero. So the net there is incredibly important. And and the net suggests there should be this idea of a a balance between sources of emissions and sinks that are going to take greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. And in terms of those other terms that you mentioned, climate neutrality and and carbon neutrality, uh, climate neutrality suggests that you're looking across the range of greenhouse gases in order to reach um, net zero. And, and, And the neutrality there captures the net element in the same way. In terms of carbon neutrality, that's focusing in very much just on CO2 emissions and wanting to achieve a net zero around carbon specifically. And and many scientists stress that that's actually incredibly important in terms of solving climate change or preventing serious climate harm, because um, CO2 is the gas that we really need to be focusing on out of all of the greenhouse gases. And that's probably the easiest for for organisations, say businesses or or large local authorities or something, to get their head around that, isn't it? Because they understand about reducing their carbon emissions. And it's something I think they can develop a clear explanation and narrative for customers and staff and stakeholders around, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I I think it, it is. And yet, if you're talking about carbon, people will very often forget 
the other greenhouse gases. And I suppose the piece of the picture there that, that needs to be added in is the fact that those greenhouse gases are typically converted into carbon dioxide equivalents so that they can then be um, you know, tackled as, as part of the overall picture like that. So actually, we, we should be thinking about those other gases too. And what sorts of gases, you know, we don't want to get too technical here, but what, what does that mean? I mean, I think we can understand what carbon dioxide is, but what, what are the other gases that we should be thinking about that are translated into those equivalent measures? Uh, maybe I can jump in here. Yeah, Yuri. Yeah, these two terms, um, net zero CO2 and net zero greenhouse gases indeed indicate two different targets. And in addition to what Chris already said before, the terms climate and carbon neutrality are really very often used, but they are really not very clear labels. Uh, the technical terms or the scientific terms are really the net zero terms. Uh, and, and one example of why those labels are very often confusing, France's low carbon strategy. In French, they intend to achieve neutralité carbone, carbon neutrality, but actually their targets target all greenhouse gases. That means they use a term which we think only refers to carbon dioxide, but actually their policy target all greenhouse gases. Coming back to your question then on all the greenhouse gases versus carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide needs to be reduced to net zero to halt additional warming happening. So that is just a geophysical constraint. However, we do climate policy under kind of the umbrella of the Paris Agreement. And the Paris Agreement tackles a set of greenhouse gases, and these include carbon dioxide, of course, methane, nitrous oxide, and also other fluorinated gases. And the Paris Agreement says we want to reach a balance or net zero greenhouse gases from all those gases. And that means that you need to compare them between each other. And that also means that if you reach net zero greenhouse gases, this doesn't just result in halting warming, but it results in peaking and then slowly reducing warming over time. So it's no wonder people get a bit confused here, isn't it? <laughs> to be honest. So I, but I think what's really key in what you've just said is obviously we, we need to have a bigger approach. We can't just focus on one, but the role of the Paris Agreement and, and obviously that was decided in, you know, COP21, which is 2015. And, you know, we should have had our hosted our, our conference of parties last year in 2020. It's been put back obviously to 2021. So, so that's what's known as COP26. Now that's important because, because the Paris Agreement was really significant in setting out that global challenge, wasn't it? And getting global agreement to that reduction target. And that's, that's, if you like, it's the baseline, isn't it, Chris, that we use to measure where we set those other targets, because the target setting is partly what we wanted to talk about today, isn't it? And, that, and that's where we're starting from. So we're starting from the Paris Agreement and that commitment to set those targets moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Paris Agreement um, set out the, the absolutely crucial temperature goal of the two degrees centigrade warming and, and ideally well below two degrees, aiming very much at 1.5 degrees. And if we keep that goal in mind, that temperature goal in mind, the targets that are being set in states' nationally determined contributions, as they're known, are very much aimed at ensuring that we don't have warming that takes us above those temperature goals. And, and the NDCs are all added up between the various states to try and measure whether we're going to overshoot those temperature goals or, or, or not. Um, and at the moment, of course, le leading into the important Glasgow COP26 that you mentioned, um, 
you know, the NDCs clearly were not in a position that we were going to be near achieving those temperature goals. Um, and therefore, states are having to really increase the level of ambition that they're showing in their target setting coming into COP26 in order to get us back on the right track. So it's a sort of collective goal across the world, but obviously individual actors, individual countries are really important. And there's some discrepancy, isn't there, between the dates that the that countries have chosen to set as their net zero target date, isn't there? I mean, we in the UK have declared 2050, and I think Sweden's declared 2045. How important are the dates? Should we get hung up about the dates? I mean, can they possibly be a barrier to action if people think, oh, it's just so far away, I don't need to bother, or conversely, it, it's too close, I'm terrified, again, I don't need to bother, because there's nothing I can do, it's too late. So are the dates, can the dates be, are they a positive thing or are they possibly a negative thing? Um, well, well, I think they're a positive thing in reminding countries that, that they have equitable oblig- obligations that underlie these dates. So the differences in dates that you're um, identifying there um, can partly be explained because different countries have different capacities to take significant action on climate change, but also have different levels of historical responsibility for um, carbon emissions. And and that should be reflected in the date that's chosen. Countries in the global north would be expected to have more ambitious, um, closer dates to achieving net zero than countries in the global south, for example. But but there is a a real danger, which I think you identify nicely there, which is that um, these dates, you know, even though in in one sense, 2050, of course, is is quite close for achieving net zero, it's still quite a long way off. And um, there is, I think, a real risk around target setting that states will commit to those kinds of targets because that's the easy bit but actually delivering on those targets in terms of a a concrete plan of action for the regulatory tools that are needed to achieve it, um, that's something completely different. Um, And I think a lot of states will find it easy to sign up to the targets, but perhaps be a little bit more foot dragging when it comes to implementation of those targets. And that's the worry. Yeah, because we haven't really got time to drag our feet, have we, Yuri? I mean, actually, the damage is happening every day. And the current trajectory we're on is that we won't not just make 1.5, we might not make two, we might end up with three or four degrees of warming. So we haven't really got time to just sit back and wait for 2050 to come around, have we? Absolutely not. Currently, our emissions are tracking still upwards towards 2030, uh, while they should be strongly reducing to be on the track to uh, consistent with limiting warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees. Uh, So we're clearly not on track. Um, At the same time, I think these net zero targets really provide a good point to aim at, and they provide a really good milestone and um, focus element for countries, for companies, for society as a whole, uh, to understand that it's not just about reducing our emissions slightly, it's about getting to net zero. Uh, at some point in the future. And I think the example of the UK is a, a really interesting example here, where the UK first set a net zero target uh, for net zero greenhouse gases by 2050, but its near-term policies were absolutely not on track or not on a pathway to, to reach that target. It was only the next year or two, two years later, actually, that uh, the UK then came forward with a new nationally determined contribution, new pledges and policies for their 2030 target that then 
put a new benchmark in line to meet that long-term target. So it is really an interplay here between the long-term and the near-term. I think the long-term is really essential to understand where we are heading and what, what the end goal is, uh, or one of the end goals for the changes we need to implement today. I think Yuri mentions a really important point there in, in relation to these interim targets, because long-term targets like 2050 are all very well, but you do need to have interim targets along the way. And the UK one, yeah, was a 2030 target where the UK is, is now aiming for 68% um, reductions in emissions by 2030, which is quite an ambitious interim target. And we need to see a lot more of those um, because it's partly a matter of accountability for these targets. You know, 2050 is a long way off. And if we get there and governments haven't made it, it's going to be rather too late in the day to say, oh, well, you know, sorry, we didn't make it. Um, but look, there's a lot of warming that's happened. You know, sorry about that. What we really need is um, key waypoints where government action and corporate action, um, which, which, you know, Yuri mentioned, which is also incredibly important. There's a lot of, a lot of corporations are now setting these net zero targets. We need to have these interim targets so that companies and states um, can be held to account by citizens. Yeah, and if I can add to this, uh, so net zero targets are important, the timing of net zero targets are important, but uh, honestly, what is even more important is getting 95% of the way. When exactly you get to net zero is much less important than getting the first 50% down, getting the next 50% down, and, and so gradually getting to net zero. So these near-term near targets are really essential there. They really determine how much warming we end up with in the end. Yeah, I think it's really easy for people to get distracted by the sort of end date, net zero by whatever it is, um, and get really distracted by trying to push that date closer and closer and closer without paying attention to actually the practical actions that are needed and the landmarks along the way. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, both of you, on the different kind of approaches that we see where we have some countries in the world like China who go for 2060. And I think widely it's agreed that that's because everyone thinks it's it's comfortably achievable. Um, whereas there are other countries that have pushed that date quite close. And I wonder if that isn't really more as a communication device with their citizens and maybe much, much more challenging to reach. So I'm interested in your thoughts on, on that disparity. Yeah, here, maybe I can jump in and, and, and first clarify and, and following up on what we have discussed earlier, the difference between net zero CO2 and net zero greenhouse gases not only changes that which gases are tackled, but it also changes the net zero dates that would be consistent with limiting warming to 1.5, for example. Uh, a net zero CO2 date consistent with limiting warming to 1.5 globally would be 2050. A net zero greenhouse gas date globally would be around 2070. So there you can see a developed country like the UK or the EU that sets a net zero greenhouse gas target for 2050, basically is setting a target 20 years of, in advance of the global average. China has set a net zero CO2 target for 2060, which is 10 years after the global average. So an even larger discrepancy. Uh, it's not just the number, but also how the target is defined. And um, in, in, in what that means for action, I think there is also an important question to be asked about how these net zero targets are being achieved. And I think we will come back to this later. 
net zero targets are achieved by strong reductions in CO2 and other greenhouse gases and a certain level of carbon dioxide removal. Now, the extent and, and which kind of carbon dioxide removal is actually used depends and depends on the strategies and the choices that countries make. And sometimes if a, if a country tries to set its targets too early, it might not really tackle the emission reductions to a, to a large degree, but will try to offset uh, by, by buying credits. And ultimately, it doesn't start the local transformation of its economy the way it should. So sometimes, so this strategy, this underlying strategy is equally important. And I, and I think that raises a really important point, actually, which comes back to the original question, which is, you know, in, in many ways, these targets are communication devices, aren't they, um, to, to, to actors out there in, in the economy, to citizens more widely. And um, we, we hear a lot about the, the term greenwashing in relation to corporations taking action on net zero, you know, and that's the idea that, yeah, you can set an ambitious target, but, but actually if you're relying an awful lot on, um, you know, offsetting as opposed to properly cutting carbon emissions, or if you have the target, but you don't really have any um, concrete plan as to how you're going to deliver it, then, you know, then you're using your communication where you're saying, oh, look at us, we're, net, we're planning net zero by 2050. You know, then that looks like greenwashing because, you know, it's all about the communication and, and there's no real um, positive action um, to, to, to back it up. And, and states can also be guilty of greenwashing, of course. So, you know, the, these kind of state targets can often suffer from the same sort of problem. But on the other hand, setting ambitious targets can be important in terms of driving technology change, you know, so you're, you're actually um, using a sort of technology forcing method by setting these targets in law and, and saying to companies, look, you are going to have to come up with the goods by this date because that's what we've set. Um, and, and I think there's a, a kind of dynamic there, actually, between those two tensions. Yeah, I think that regulatory framework is really helpful for non-stake actors, so you know, businesses or, or, or perhaps local authorities, so local government. I just wanted to pick a little bit about that greenwashing idea that you've just shared, Chris, because I think that this kind of sort of flows into the whole conversation about offsets a little. And, and I think people sometimes think that if they make a statement, say we'll be carbon neutral, say by 2025, they know that they can get there through using offsets. So they just, you know, they, they do work on reduction, they do work on reducing their carbon emissions, and they perhaps work on mitigation. But, but really, what they're doing is they're saying, we'll reduce a little bit, but we'll actually buy our way out of the problem. We'll offset, we'll purchase offsets, and offsets are relatively cheap. And, and therefore, we can show to our shareholders and our, our stakeholders that we're carbon neutral, because we've offset our emissions by forestation, whether planting of trees or other such activities. That's part of that greenwash debate, really, isn't it? Because actually, it's giving an impression that you're doing far more than you really are. And that won't get us anywhere near net zero, that sort of behaviour. No, and I think there's going to have to be tighter rules on this going forward, actually, because it needs to be made much clearer, both with state targets and with corporate targets, that offsetting should really just be for the, um, not the low-hanging fruit, but, but the fruit that's right at the top of the tree, you know, that we really, these are emissions that are really 
you know, very, very difficult to solve. Um, and offsetting should be reserved for those. You, you shouldn't be using offsetting for the low-hanging fruit. So, um, so what would be a, a high fruit as opposed to a low fruit in this conversation? Well, well I mean, you, you can look at this from lots of different angles. You can look at it across sectors, for example. So you may say that, you know, the cement industry, for example, um, or the aviation industry, you know, th those are both industries where re reducing emissions significantly it is a bit of a challenge. But on the other hand, if you say to both industries, oh, do you know what? Actually, you're a difficult industry, so you, you can rely more on offsets. Then you come across the problem that you're not forcing the technology to change. So, I mean, even there, it's a little bit of an issue. But you can also look at it from, you know, within companies as well. You know, there, if you look at an individual company level, there will be some emissions that companies could actually solve quite, quite straightforwardly. Um, and they should really be tackling those at source and, and they shouldn't be relying on offsets for that. And, and, and there is a danger that companies will just try to reach for offsetting for a lot of their activities just because they can. And I think what, you know, the law and policy needs to move towards is to say, well, no, you can't easily do that. And we'll have some kind of percentage level, you know, where, where maybe, you know, 90 to 95% of your emissions, say, have to be cut. And, and yeah, the, the remaining 5 to 10%, maybe you can rely on offsets. Yeah. And also here, in addition to what Chris mentions, it's, um, there's also an important question about the types of offsets. Offset credits are being issued both for emission reductions somewhere else, or emission removals somewhere else. Uh, the offset credits that are being issued for emission reductions still result in emissions uh, ultimately. So there is a really important question of fairness and additionality with these offsets. And I think one really useful way for companies and, and countries to figure out whether they are doing uh, the right thing is to try and, and scale up what they are doing to the globe and ask the question, what are the implications if everybody globally would take the same strategy as I am doing? Are we actually getting to globally net zero emissions? And in many cases, if you use a lot of offsets, this would not be the case because offsets can only be used once. That means that if a country issues an offset credit and it sells it to another country, it cannot use those reductions towards its own emission inventory, or that is called double counting. So offsets imply a really important fairness issue, that if uh, rich countries are buying all the cheap emission reductions in developing countries, ultimately it undermines those developing countries' opportunities and uh, possibilities to get to net zero themselves. And ultimately, globally, we would not get to net zero. And, and these are important fairness and global aspects that, that need to be taken into account. And I think the other thing to add in there is, you know, the point's often been made, I think, that there, there simply isn't enough land out there to cope with all of these offsets if everyone reaches towards them. I mean, I, I think Shell, for example, you know, with their net zero um, ambition that they've set out, it, they're, they're seeking to rely quite a lot on offsets. And people have suggested that, you know, Shell would need a landmass the size of Brazil or possibly even two Brazils in order to cope with their offsets. And, and if that's just one company, um, you can imagine if you then try and roll that out across all of the companies that want to rely on offsets, uh, and we're not going to have enough space. 
just so I've got this straight, you're saying that Shell's Shell's own emissions would need two Brazils, or are you talking about Shell's vision for the whole world's emissions? Yeah, so the plan that Shell put forward in its Sky 1.5 scenario is not necessarily the plan they intend to implement. It is a scenario, it's a vision, it's an exploration of the future. But in that future, how they describe it, for the entire world to get to net zero by mid-century roughly, they would indeed rely on nature-based solutions uh, that require land of the size of Brazil. So that really shows there they made choices about not reducing emissions so much, but really using lots of removals. That's a choice. It's still a huge reliance on nature-based carbon dioxide removal. And here I just want to highlight that the net in net zero targets is essential. I mean, we don't know how to eliminate all our emissions. So we need to rely on some, to some degree on carbon dioxide removal. But there are very many different types of carbon dioxide removal. There are the nature-based solutions that store carbon dioxide in basically in, in ecosystems and in, in, in the topsoil or, or in biomass. And then they're like more engineered solutions that use chemical filters to capture CO2 from the atmosphere and pipe it underground. They have very different risks. For example, from nature-based solutions, uh, we know they're cheap. They have multiple other benefits, biodiversity and so on. But they're also vulnerable to reversal in a changing climate that we are, that we are very afraid of and that we are trying to limit the next, the next heat wave, the next forest fire, the next drought can result in the carbon that was carefully stored in these ecosystems over 10, 20 years suddenly being released. And if we rely too much on those activities really delivering, we might end up not meeting the goals that we actually want to achieve. Yeah, that, you're absolutely right, Yuri, because, because what this does is it rather implies we can take this trajectory to net zero to 2050 without any other factors being included at all. It's almost like it's a neutral statement, but there's all this other stuff happening at the moment, isn't there? There's threats to the climate, there's damage to the ecosystems and the biosphere, there's the natural releasing of carbon dioxide and CO2 because of, of global heating already, so exposing tundra and the Arctic and things. So, so none of these things are existing in a, in a vacuum. They're all interrelated to what's going on and already in the world. But, but I just wondered, I know, Chris, you're quite concerned about the whole issue of climate justice, you know, not surprisingly, as you're you know, an advisor to Client Earth, and that's one of their key drivers. There is an issue here, isn't there, about the disparity between the rich industrialized nations and, and, and those that are not, so the global north and the global south. How does that play into this whole setting of targets and what we should be doing as a member of the former, a rich industrialized country? Well, well I think it comes back to historical responsibility for greenhouse gas emissions in part that involves countries in the global north having emitted most of the um, carbon so far and leaving very little space for countries in the global south, those that are now industrialising, leaving them very little space to do so. I mean, it, it does raise interesting questions about um, capacity as well. You know, the global north is obviously much better able to afford the kinds of measures that are needed to tackle climate emissions. Um, but, but having said that, I mean, there is an argument to say that countries in the global south should be and can leapfrog, is the term that's often used, the, the kind of carbon economy and move straight for a, a decarbonized approach. Because you know, they're so not they, emitting as much already now. So they're not at the same stage where they haven't got these big emissions. Well, they're, they're, they're not emitting as much now, but they 
also, you know, instead of building coal-fired power stations increasingly, they should be and could be moving straight towards, you know, use, using more renewables, for example. But, you know, that's a nice argument, but, you know, it comes back to their ability to afford that sort of financing. And I think, you know, climate finance is often the, the ignored factor, actually, in a, in a lot of this debate, that for countries in the global south to, to get to net zero and to be able to engage in that type of leapfrogging, um, they will need finance to do that. And as part of the Paris Agreement, countries in the global north committed to provide climate finance to, to countries in the global south, and that needs to be forthcoming. In, in order for those countries to be able to get to their net zero positions and to be able to finance those. But, but there's also, I mean, in terms of climate justice, of course, what, what you have to remember is that a lot of countries in the global south are very resource dependent. You know, they're, they're very reliant on a lot of these old industries, uh, including mining for fossil fuels. And if we're expecting them suddenly to move away from those resources, you know, which in many cases are keeping their economies afloat, you know, then again, some kind of rapid financial support mechanism to enable them to transition uh, and for that to be a just transition in their cases is incredibly important. Yeah, and here, as part of this just transition, I think we also need to step away a bit from thinking that everybody needs to get to net zero. In some cases, this will just not be possible. So that really means that some countries, those that can, need to think about going net negative. And what am I thinking about here? Um, take Singapore, a small, rich city-state, obviously has the means to reduce its emissions, but locally, on, on its landmass, there is just not that much space. Will that country ever be able to get domestically to net zero? And on the other hand, there are countries like Sweden and Finland that indeed have already set early net zero targets and explicitly already highlight that after that, they will be going into net negative territory. And that could really help, for example, within the EU to help countries that are in more challenging positions to reduce their emissions, either because of political, but also because of technological reasons. And for example, a country like Ireland with very high residual emissions from their agricultural sector might well be very thankful for Finland and Sweden to go net negative so that at the EU level, net zero can be achieved. Yuri, what do you mean by net negative? Just so I've got my head around this completely. No, that, that's, that's a really good question. Um, ultimately, net zero is a point in time. It's like a, a milestone on a longer trajectory. Already net zero doesn't mean that there are zero emissions. Net zero already means there are very low emissions, as low as possible, I would say, compensated or balanced by a certain amount of carbon dioxide removal. Now, once we are there, there is no reason why a country or a company that can go beyond that shouldn't implement more sustainable carbon dioxide removal while continuing to try to reduce its, its emissions and thus actually, on average, start removing CO2 from the atmosphere. And that would take you to net negative. So basically, you're not just not emitting anything, you're actually extracting or removing even more than others. So you're in a kind of negative position, you know, your, your exactly. emissions are, 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 are below zero, as it were. Yeah, okay. Just so I was Precisely. And, and, and from a global perspective, 
that is really essential because the potential for emission reductions is not equally distributed. The potential for carbon dioxide removal is not equally distributed. Some potentials for carbon dioxide removal are actually because of historical uh, circumstances. For example, in Euro Europe, we have deforested Europe to a very large degree. That means now we have lots of space for afforestation to plant new forests. Well, that means that we are in a very different positions to countries that have not yet been deforested. But Yuri, how, how do you see adding into that equation the issue of um, offshoring of manufacturing so that, you know, you may be saying that a number of these countries in, in Europe will be moving towards net negative emissions. But if, on the other hand, you know, they're not manufacturing as much as they did in, you know, the times of their industrial revolution, because a lot of the manufacturing is now taking place in places like China and Southeast Asia, then does that really mean that they have reached net negative emissions? Yeah, that's, that's a, a really important uh, question. And it, it boils down to the question, now most of our targets or most of country targets are based on production or domestic emissions, the emissions that are produced on the territory of a certain country. And they don't include the emissions that are embedded in the products that we import. However, it's not so easy to also include those consumption-based emissions, even not from kind of an ethical point of view. We have been discussing a lot about developed countries needing to take the lead, going to net zero earlier and so on, uh, to give more quote unquote space for developing countries. Uh, so it would be a bit ethically perverse to then say, oh, we go to net zero, uh, we give you more space. We also account for our, uh, for our consumption-based emissions, so we won't be buying any of the products that you are producing because they are too carbon intensive. You can, you can produce, but we, we won't be using it, we won't be helping. Well, and, I, and I, either we won't be using it or we'll be applying some kind of carbon border tax on, on that. Or we take more responsibility for working even harder to offset the carbon that's embedded in the products that we import as a nation or, or, or that are you know, further down the line. So if you buy something that you know is carbon heavy in its production, you are responsible as a business, as a country for doing more to balance that. So you actually have to do either, either more offsetting or you have to drive down your own emissions even further to, to counterbalance the fact that you've bought something that's carbon heavy, surely. I mean, it's, it, you can't just say, oh, well, you know, we just won't discount, we won't count those, because this is a global problem, isn't it? So we're interconnected. So we have to take responsibility for, for those emissions elsewhere, for products yeah. that when services we're buying in, surely. It is incredibly important, but I, I mean, ultimately, in, in, in one way, this is an accounting issue, isn't it? I mean, you, you can't have double counting of emissions. And I suppose that's one of the reasons why the global rules on all of this say that it is just, you know, in-country emissions that you're, mm -hmm. you're looking at. Um, but, but I absolutely agree that um, countries that are basically importing a lot of goods that have been manufactured elsewhere where you know they're still causing significant carbon harm they those countries should be absolutely taking some positive steps in you know to, to help reduce those carbon emissions in those other countries where possible i want to jump in yeah, a bit ahead, on, this, on this accounting issue so i think you know we've been talking um a bit earlier on about quite discrete boundaries, right? So you could take all the nations of the world, add it up neatly together, and that helps us to think about things in relation to our global agreements, like at COP and so on. It helps us to think about these net zero targets in that in that sort of particular framework. 
but I'm not sure I'm going to be a bit contentious, Chris. I'm I'm not sure we should completely reject double counting. We should we should reject counting emissions or giving people credit for it twice or paying for it twice. But actually, we could imagine maybe lots of overlapping net zero targets. We see lots of councils, local authorities declaring net zero targets. We see companies declaring net zero targets. We see nations declaring net zero targets, but also regions. Um, so I wonder if you can comment a little bit on how that kind of messy puzzle fits together. It's obviously much easier if we talk about things just at a, a, an easy kind of national level. So what are the benefits and disadvantages of that kind of messy approach? Well, those those targets that you mentioned across a range of different actors, you know, from local authorities or cities to companies to, to states, um, I mean, obviously, those, you know, they are, as you say, all setting net zero targets, but they're they're not double counting as such. I mean, they're they're all responsible for looking after their own targets, and and one achieving their target will obviously help the other actors potentially achieve their targets. So you know, there is a kind of win-win situation there in terms of applying the you know the relevant pressure. Um, but but I don't think it's it's double accounting in the same way there. But yeah, I mean, on your earlier points, I absolutely agree that. Um, what you don't want is for um, companies or states to be able to pull the wool over people's eyes by counting the same thing twice. There's no reason why you shouldn't force them to contemplate the things that aren't being properly counted and to take action on it. It's just it shouldn't really count towards them delivering the particular target that you've set them or that they've set themselves. There are some very clear explanations about how we set credible targets in the paper, Chris. I didn't really want to go into that, but I wonder if we could perhaps draw the discussion to a close a little bit by talking about what the opportunities of COP are and what perhaps we should be calling for both at the conference, but more importantly, wider in policy terms, Yuri, about what we could be saying, what should we be doing um, and what should we be advising our governments to do around this whole issue of getting to net zero? Yeah, going towards the copying in Glasgow now, there are really three aspects that uh, can really contribute to the implementation of, of net zero targets. First of all, in this COP, countries are invited for the first time to also present long-term strategies. And as part of those long-term strategies, they can include net zero targets. They can include and specify and clearly say where they want to head second aspect where countries can really improve is indeed by setting their NDCs, their near-term nationally determined pledges, uh, to be in line with going towards net zero by mid-century. So that is the second part where the COP can deliver, uh, because countries also this year need to come forward with new, strengthened, improved pledges. And then finally, in the Paris Agreement, the net zero target of the Paris Agreement is quite broad. Net zero greenhouse gases need to be reached in the second half of the century. The COP could try to make this more specific, although there is a reason why this is so vague, and uh, making it more specific would definitely be a really large challenge. So I wouldn't necessarily pin the success of the COP on making this more specific or not, but better NDCs, better near-term pledges, and including net zero targets in long-term strategies is something where the COP can deliver. And I hope uh, it will do it. Yeah, really tangible um, suggestions. Thank you. Yeah. Um, on the net zero targets, they are really powerful tools, as we discussed, to kind of set, set out an, 
a really important milestone in our journey towards dealing with climate change. And so they're a really positive evolution in, in what we see in, in climate uh, action. At the same time, what I think is necessary is to have clarity and transparency about what is implied by those targets. And there, governments and companies can really help by following a couple of rules, a couple of guidelines that define how a high quality targets looks like. And by following those lines, we can actually start discussing them. Uh, as we started this podcast about discussing about climate neutrality, carbon neutrality, they mean different things for different companies in different contexts. So they're really not very useful to, to just be, well, it's really good for a pub talk, but not very good to kind of understand what everybody is actually contributing. So if we can have the clarity there, so we can come around the table and have a societal debate about this, uh, that would be really essential now. Yeah, it's about taking everyone with us on this journey, isn't it? Not just governments and policymakers, but it's individuals too and the actions that we take as, as consumers and as employees and perhaps as influencers in our own organisations. Chris, what, what opportunities should we be looking for at COP and what should we be hoping that comes out of it in relation to this? Well, I mean, at COP itself, as, as a negotiation between states with the involvement of NGOs as well, I, I mean, I think it it's obviously about trying to get the level of ambition around targets increased. I mean, that, that's, that's obviously crucial. But, but I think and I, I, I want to kind of end on a, a slightly controversial note, perhaps, but it comes back to your point about engaging citizens. It's interesting, isn't it? Because this term net zero, it's out there now. Uh, and it, it's taken on a kind of almost magical quality. But, but actually, if you think about it as a term, it's, I, I wonder how much it actually means to, to many people, at, you know, other than experts in, in a podcast like this. Does it really engage people talking about net zero? So I think in, in the run-up to COP, it's important not just to be talking about these technical terms, but also to be showing people what real opportunities are out there in relation to net zero. And that comes back to the incredibly important point that we've made in the podcast, which is that it's not just all about the targets. It's about what you're going to do to get there. Um, and, and that's really where you know, the challenges, but also the opportunities really lie. And I think presenting those opportunities to the public is actually much more likely to be engaging at the end of the day. Yeah, and that's about making it real, isn't it? You talked earlier about fruit, high and low fruit. One of those things is changing your behaviour, not getting on aeroplanes, trying to reduce your own consumption, committing as an organisation to, to saying we don't need to fly, we can do business. You know, as we're recording this podcast through Zoom, there's other ways of working. And maybe your fabulous four Ps that appear at the end of end of your paper, you know, pledge, plan, proceed, publish. I mean, actually, for, for us as the general public, it's the planning and the proceeding that's the really important bit isn't it you know because because people can make pledges and they can publish data but excuse me but it's what we do that matters it is although you know that idea of us as individuals taking action you know like cutting down on meat consumption cutting down on flying um you know that, that's important but I, I have to say that you know the more important thing is that, that there's needs to be significant structural change and that, you know, ultimately, individuals have not really caused this problem. You know, it's some of the big structural players like the fossil fuel industry that has the greater share of responsibility here. And so they're the ones that are going to need to 
take the lead and, and in a sense bear the brunt of the significant and rapid transition that's needed. Alisa. Yeah, no, I just wanted to draw attention. I, I really, I really like the way the paper finishes with those four Ps, but I think it's a call to action for these people um, at the organizational level and national level, sometimes at the national levels, who are making net zero targets. So um, it's for them to now go beyond these these great and as Yuri says, really great addition to the climate change story, these kind of net zero pledges, but really plan, give us interim targets, um, and then start to proceed on those actions and tell us what they're doing, publish them. And that will help this kind of connection that Chris describes with the public. Yeah, it's about delivery, isn't it? Thank you so much. It's such a complex subject and there's so much more to say, but thank you for sharing it with such insight and erudition. So Chris and, and Yuri, thank you very much for being part of the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. And, and Elisa, as always, for co-hosting and, and, and juggling all sorts of other things, <laughs> such as homeschooling while she's yeah. doing it. So this fantastic is, to have yeah, you. Juggling era. The juggling era. Great yeah. to have you. Great to have you here. Um, you've been listening to The Climate Papers. You can catch other episodes of this podcast um, either via the Grantham Institute website or the Cop University's website or on PlanetPod. Um, or why not subscribe? And then it will just pop into your inbox whenever a new edition is out. So thank you so much for joining us. Do follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. And we look forward to being with you again soon. So thank you and goodbye. The Climate Papers is brought to you by PlanetPod Productions and sponsored by the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London. Thank you.